Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And a couple of weeks ago, I was having coffee with Lene Erickson, who you know from our weekly roundups. And we started talking about how Republicans have focused on and prioritized the federal judiciary and why Democrats don't really have an organization like the Federalist Society to train and develop future judges. So with a lot of focus on the Supreme Court and federal judges after two big decisions that came down at the end of August and early September, one that ended the eviction moratorium and another that allowed a Texas law banning abortion after six weeks to go into effect, I wanted to revisit this conversation on the show. So today, I'm excited to have a good friend of politicology, Lene Erickson, here with me today. Lene is the senior vice president for the social policy and politics program at Third Way. Lene also served on President Obama's advisory council on faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. And she's a graduate of the University of Minnesota Law School and was legislative counsel for the Alliance for Justice, where she conducted research into the records for nominees and federal circuit courts. Lene, thanks for making the time to do this. Of course. So... Before we dive into how Democrats and Republicans think about the federal courts, um, can you just briefly summarize the role and structure of the federal judiciary for the average American who doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about this and and needs a, a primer on the on the the broad structure? Sure. There is an article in the Constitution, Article 3, that is what organizes the federal courts. And as we know, there's, uh, you know, there's Congress and there's the president. And then the courts are supposed to be the third co-equal branch of our government to create all those checks and balances that we love so much. Um, And so the way it works is there are district courts Mm -hmm. and those are the places that you have like your trial. And then there's an appellate court that that one can be appealed up to. And then there's the Supreme court, which we all know about. So if you think about the whole country, it is divided up into different circuits. And so you have, say, you've heard a lot about the Ninth Circuit. That is a huge swath of the West, including uh, California, but also including a lot of those Western mountainous states. Uh, The Fourth Circuit is um, kind of here around D.C. And you have judges that sit on these appellate courts that decide about 12,000 cases a year compared to the Supreme Court usually decides about 70. So those judges are doing most of the lawmaking um, in in the federal courts. Um, and yet that doesn't mean that we actually pay attention to them the same way that we do to the Supreme Court um, in either the news or in politics. Okay. So there's really three layers here. At the lowest level, there's district courts, and then the appellate courts are also called circuit courts. That's right. And then at the very top, we have Supreme Courts who are deciding basically on, only on constitutional issues at those lower levels. That's right. Okay. So- In his one term in office, Trump appointed a third of the Supreme Court, 30% of circuit court judges, that's the middle layer, and a quarter of district court judges. Can you talk about the long-term impact that these appointments can have? Well, I, when you think about judges, you have to remember that they are their lifetime appointments. All of them. All of them. And these um, and the conservative wing of the party, um, you know, Republican Party has been really good at making sure they appoint the youngest possible person for all of these roles. Right. So, um, you know, and they've gotten better at that over time. There's a reason that uh, Trump's nominees to the Supreme Court are so youthful looking uh, <laughs> compared to, uh, you know, some of the ones that have just passed away from the liberal side. So um, they, they're they going to be on the bench for decades and decades making these decisions. And, um, you know, the Supreme Court gets to decide which cases it decides unless there's a state involved and then it has to. Um, but if there's not a state involved, as a party um, and a couple of other limited circumstances, the the Supreme Court has four votes that decide whether or not they take a case. So they need five to win a case. They need four to take it. So these circuit courts are making all of these laws. And then the Supreme Court looks at them and says, am I going to overrule or upheld? uphold one of these circuit court decisions. Oftentimes it's when one circuit has said one thing and another circuit says another. That's called a circuit split. And then that's Mm -hmm. when the Supreme Court decides that they're going to weigh in. So if the first circuit in Massachusetts says something different than the fifth circuit in Texas, um, then the Supreme Court might say, okay, now we need to weigh in and and clarify the law for everyone. Um, But that's, uh, you know, we're talking about judges who are making decisions about which laws are allowed to stay on the book 
books, mm-hmm. which law, how they're going to be enforced. Um, obviously, there's there's criminal laws that they're taking on everything from, you know, the death penalty to uh, to Bernie Madoff's type scandals, right. everything in civil courts, everything about our, our kind of constitution. Um, and uh, they they have the power to strike down uh, either a state or or a federal law that they decide shouldn't stand. So obviously it's a it's a big job. And until and unless there's a challenge to one of those rulings and until and unless the Supreme Court decides they're going to hear a challenge to those rulings, essentially the, the decisions that they're making are highly consequential because they serve as precedent for future decisions, right? Absolutely. Yes. So the Supreme Court um, is the highest court in the land and everything that they put out is is precedent. This is what we call a common law system. And so um, instead of saying, okay, what, um, you know, what does the law say um, on the books? We're saying we're building law over time. And, you know, this is kind of based on the UK system that we then brought over here. So uh, the judges are supposed to look both at what legislatures do, but also at what courts have said mm-hmm. over time in the past about that thing. They are supposed to look at co-equal courts um, and also the courts that are above them. So the district courts have to look to their circuit courts and to the Supreme Court. The circuit courts um, will look to the Supreme Court. And But like I said, if they're deciding 12,000 cases a year and the Supreme Court's deciding 70, mm-hmm. That leaves 11,000 and a lot (laughs) that are just standing. Um, And those circuit courts are the final decision makers on those cases. So they do their best to follow the law. um, But, you know, as the Supreme Court has laid out, but every case is different. So they're interpreting something new every single time and making a decision about, you know, how Americans are going to live their lives. Okay, so we saw Donald Trump make his potential judicial nominees, especially on the Supreme Court major parts of both of his campaigns. Why would a Republican make this such a central part of their presidential campaign? Well, Republicans have made this a central part of their campaign and their their agenda for many, many years. So um, during the Reagan administration, there was basically a, a big come to Jesus moment where they said, OK, the courts are doing liberal stuff we don't like. Uh, they're striking down laws we do like. They're upholding ones we don't. They're doing we, activism. They're doing things, <laughs> things, right. right? The Warren Court in the 60s made a lot of changes around criminal justice reform, obviously. Obviously, there was Roe versus Wade in the 70s. There are all these kind of progressive decisions being made around affirmative action and other things. And they were like, wait, we need to pay attention to this. So they had a concerted effort to bring together um, the academics in the space, the um, practitioners, and um, and the the politicians and said, okay, let's let's make this a priority. Um, Edwin Meese, the attorney general during uh, the Reagan administration, did a big memo that was like, here's how we're going to remake the courts mm-hmm. in our image. Mm-hmm. And, and then they did it. And they paid attention to it and they did it. They understood the importance of these circuit court judges, the appellate level judges, um, and that they were the ones making, you know, exponentially more law than the Supreme Court. So that was a place they really wanted to dig in. Obviously, they cared about the Supreme Court too. Um, and they and they decided we're going to judge who we put up for these appointments based on ideology. Mm-hmm. We are going to make sure that any judge that a Republican president puts on the bench is going to make the decisions we want them to make. And that wasn't the case before. Usually it was more like, oh, I know someone, you know, they know the senator. Yeah. Let's get them in. Yeah. But yeah. Um, do we the, know any judges? Go right. get any judges. It, which is still kind of yeah. how Democrats do it. So we can get to that. But, you know, I think uh, the, they really decided uh, we need uh, a body to recommend to us the most conservative jurists. Okay. And so that's where the Federalist Society came in. And, you know, just fast forward to Trump. Now, Donald Trump is not a typical Republican in lots and lots of ways. He very much was here. And it was because it was his sale to evangelical voters Mm -hmm. and other religious voters. Mm -hmm. He wasn't really the darling of religious conservatives, as you know. uh, You know, and and in the 2016 race, I know a lot of religious conservatives who had a a really hard time deciding who they were going to vote for. Did they want to vote for this, um, you know, very immoral, horrible human um, but they also had problems with Hillary, Hillary Clinton, and um, and they decided on Trump because of judges. 
Judges. And then he delivered. Okay. And when you look at how he has remade the bench in particular, in a one single term, four years, he appointed and got confirmed 54 of those circuit court judges. In Obama's two terms, he got 55. Wow. That wow. is astounding. So we're, we're talking about remaking yeah. those circuit courts in, in a short four years in a way that Obama wasn't able to do over eight. eight years. And, and you kind of look back. I mean, it, Mitch McConnell just made the Senate a, a confirmation machine. Yeah. And it was one thing that Donald Trump did not succeed at much. But, boy, he succeeded at getting the j- judges on the bench. And, you know, he was just asking the Federalist Society yeah. who to put on. He wasn't—Donald Trump doesn't know anything about any of those nominees. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but he was— um, willing to be used as a tool for that because he knew it served him politically, and it did. It yeah. really solidified his support amongst religious conservatives who have all, have long prioritized this issue. Okay. So I have a couple of questions, follow-up questions. First, let's talk about um, what it means to be a conservative judge. Are we talking about what kind of conservatism do we mean? For example, are we talking about conservative jurisprudence? And is that different from from a conservative small c classical conservative ideology? What kind of characteristics? What is the ideology that let's? And then let's talk more about the Federalist Society. What is it that they're looking for exactly? Well, I think there's a couple of different kinds of judges they look for. Um, you know, if you look at the record of the judges that they elevate and move up through the system, often someone will start as a state judge or as a district court judge, and then they move them up to, you know, they've proven their mettle. Right. <laughs> so they move them right. up. Uh, and we should say some of those state judges are elected in that's some right. states, right? right. So, which is which is crazy. Right. I mean, we, we should have a whole podcast about yeah. how electing judges is crazy. Bad we idea. shouldn't do it. Yeah. Um, but like I said, the appointment process isn't going that well either. So <laughs> I, I don't know what the alternative is. But the um, the thing, you know, there are a couple of different kinds of judicial conservatives. And I, I would give you two examples. Okay. One is um, Antonin Scalia. So uh, obviously deceased Supreme Court justice. He was what you call a strict constructionist. And what he said is you just need to look at the at the words on the paper that is, you know, that's really where you got to focus. What does it say on the paper? I'm not worrying about, you know, what are the circumstances? Mm-hmm. What, you know, what surrounded it? Um, what, what do people understand these words to mean at the right. time? Right. Yeah. No, they, that's what it says. He was very obsessed with where where are the commas? You know, mm-hmm. like we had this uh, the Second Amendment case, and he was like, the comma is here, the comma is here. That's that means that the law means this. As a fan of the Oxford comma, I can understand the, the appeal uh, to. Comma. Yeah. I agree, and and as a <laughs> as what many people call a super proofer, I agree. Yes, I am. I'm also a bit of a comma Nazi, but uh, yes. Yeah, so, but he. Um, that meant that sometimes he uh, decided things that conservatives didn't like. That mm. he would be, you know, I would be on the same side yeah. as as Scalia because, for example, in First Amendment cases, yeah. or in Fourth Amendment cases, which is about search and seizure, he was he he was like, no, you can't search someone's apartment with, you know, a, a, a infrared right. light. It says no searches, right. you know, and so there were times in which he would not be where, say, the Republican Party is. Um, And then there's other people, like I would say, um, you know, I would say that there's a few on the Supreme Court (laughs) right now. But um, I think if you look at somebody like Brett Kavanaugh, he is much more like just kind of doing whatever the Mm. Republicans would want. Okay. Um, and that is, um, you know, less, he's less consistent in his judicial philosophy and more consistent in his outcomes. Okay. So those are big distinctions to understand because I think, you know, I think it's probably fair to say that even if the president appointing these judges thinks that, uh, you know, because I appointed like Donald Trump, right? Because I appointed these people, they're going to rule in my favor every single time. Well, actually, what you might be getting is a coherent judicial philosophy that is not going to rule. You're not going to come out in favor of everything that you want, right? It's not going to come out the way you think it is. Correct. And Roberts was a great example of this during the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, maybe you can. Well, I would say actually that John no? Roberts is much more. Um, he he certainly has a Jewish philosophy, but he also. Um, has taken his role as chief justice differently than he did, mm. um, you know, than than his past experience might okay. m- might say. Like, I think that he is a person who cares about cares about the court as an institution and cares about building consensus. And so he ends up, um, you know, kind of creating alliances and yeah. finding um, places to have a concurrence, which means, you know, I don't um, agree with the reasoning of the majority, but I agree with their decision and here's a different reason for it. So he is very proud of the fact that he can have a lot of decisions that come out of his court that are seven or eight justices mm-hmm. or even nine agreeing on something. Yeah. And um, so he do think he's a bit of a consensus builder. Um, and uh, But yeah, most presidents want to appoint somebody that, especially on the big political issues, is going to do the thing they want. Yeah. And so it's why these confirmation hearings often focus on um, abortion, guns, um, you know, these these big culture issues that yeah. we know that the Supreme Court has weighed, it, weighed in on multiple times. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's... Um, the best example of a you know really high profile justice that didn't do what people thought was David Souter. So mm-hmm. David Souter was appointed by a Republican, and then he became a very uh, very reliable liberal vote mm-hmm. <laughs> on the Supreme Court. He was part of the liberal bloc um, during uh, you know during the '90s and and most in the 2000s until he retired. And so the right wing uses Souter as you know, kind of the persona non grata, like uh, don't ever pull a suitor. <laughs> you got to make sure you know who these people are, because if you pull a suitor, then yeah. you know that's the worst thing that could possibly happen. Yeah. And and so they they use the Federalist Society to go really deep on these um, folks' backgrounds and uh, opinions on things to make sure that even at the district court level, yeah. they're only putting in people that are going to reliably vote. Uh, pro-business and, you know, anti-worker are going to reliably vote pro-police and anti-defendant are going to reliably vote, um, you know, against federal laws that are seen as, you know, too expansive um, because that's the agenda that, you know, they laid out decades ago to remake the judiciary after. Okay. Eventually, I want to get to why Roberts sees his role as sort of the caretaker of the of the credibility and legitimacy of the Supreme Court as an institution and why that's important. But before we get there, let's talk more about the Federalist Society and why Democrats don't have an equivalent to they don't have an answer to the Federalist Society. So why don't we start with what is the Federalist Society exactly and maybe how has it changed over the last couple of years, several years, many years. (laughs) Many years. The Federalist Society (laughs) is an organization that promotes conservative legal thought. Uh, There are Federalist Society chapters in law schools across the country. They host events. They, um, you know, bring in speakers. They try to make sure, um, you know, I think the initial thing was thinking that law schools were too liberal and inculcating people with liberal values. And so we need to get in there and have a conservative voice in the law schools. So, um, um, they do they do a ton of work with baby lawyers to try to kind of um, to shape how they're thinking and um, and then they have been basically um, outsourced the uh, the appointment process for Republican judges. So um, yeah. Democrats have a, a more complex way of figuring out who they're going to appoint to the bench, but Republicans have to be approved by the Federalist Society. Right. And so if they're not recommended by the Federalist Society, basically you're not going to get a job. Right. So um, they they operate as a vetter in that, in that space. Um, and then they bring all these judges together for these big conferences where they all talk about like how they're going to remake the law in their image. Mm. And, you know, I so I worked at a place called Alliance for Justice when I first moved to D.C. and I got to go to one of these Federalist Society conferences and, you know, you know, much to my chagrin, I was like the only woman in the room. Oh, wow. And uh, I sat down next to one of the judges that um, had been nominated by George W. Bush, who I was trying to keep off the bench, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and had a really lovely conversation with him. But huh. um, it, it, it is truly um, 
like a, a convention. Like a one-stop shop. For, yeah, for a one-stop shop for judges and lawyers, too, mm-hmm. um, and and really um, trying to combat the idea that law schools and, and the law has a liberal bias. We should talk about federalism and why it why the Federalist Society bears that name and 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 why it is so important. And then and then let's then let's pivot to um why Republicans are so good at this and why Democrats are so bad at this. Yeah, federalism. So, what is federalism? Well, let's start there. Yes, federalism is is the idea that um we're gonna have layers of government and instead of having one national government that decides everything, we're gonna allow states and then localities to make most decisions. Most laws live. Um, at the local or state level, and the federal laws are only going to touch things that are necessary to be done at the federal level, Um, that the states have retained all powers that they did not explicitly give to the federal government when we set up the The federal government. Yes. So um, it's the reason we have, uh, you know, we have a Bill of Rights. It's the reason that every single law that Congress passes has to have a power in the Constitution that it's related to. So you, uh, you know, oftentimes Congress will use the interstate commerce clause. That's a, that's one everybody loves, right? Which says Congress can regulate things that are about commerce that goes between the states, because that seems like something they should be able to regulate. Well, Congress likes to use this for For all Every manner of things, right? <laughs> it's basically the expandable. It's like their keyhole into doing all everything. Things, yeah. Yes. So one example that uh, you know, much to my chagrin, was was uh, struck down was the um, the law that said you um, can't have guns near school property. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a good idea. Yeah. But it's not really about interstate commerce. <laughs> right. It's very difficult to it's, make that argument. I mean, I guess it is because sometimes guns go across state lines, but it was yeah. it was a stretch yeah. and the Supreme Court said so. So um, that is, you know, that's a lot of what these these judges do is, is take a look at, okay, here's the Constitution. What power are you saying you're using? Because um, otherwise the state— if it's not it's, fair— Then it's the state's job to do this. Job. And then that's why, you know, that's, that's a very conservative principle. Um, and that's why the Federalist Society is named as such, because they really like to strike down laws that liberals like that are nationwide right. and say, no, 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 we want local control. Right. However, I yeah. will say the Federalist Society conference I went to was during the Bush administration, and the entire thing was about executive power. <laughs> wow. It's been a minute then. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it was all about how the president can do whatever they want and war powers wow. and executive power and torture. And John Yu was on. It, if you remember, he's the one that wrote the torture memos oh during the Bush administration, and he was arguing at the Federalist Society that basically the president could do whatever, do whatever they want. They want. Wow. So, you know, that's where I say they're more political than they yeah. are about philosophy. Got it. Okay. So while the name, because for me, federalism seems to be a very defensible way of seeing jurisprudence, but the Federalist Society is not necessarily um, about that. Correct. Uh, okay. So that's that's an important line to draw. Yeah. Just, I think, for our listeners to understand that there's a big distinction between what federalism actually is and what the Federalist Society does and how it organizes its politics. So, um, all right. Here's the real big question. And this came up in a conversation I had uh, with a dear friend, and we were both mutually wondering why don't Democrats have an answer, a political, mechanical answer to the Federalist Society? And Republicans have, as we've discussed, been so good, effective, efficient at getting judges on the bench at the federal level, right? We're only talking, we're not talking about the state layer here, just federal bench. But Democrats don't seem to either, A, have a machine that does this, or B, have a political focus on it among, you know, it's never a campaign issue. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of intensity among the base for um, for advancing Democratic judges or, or, you know, a different judicial philosophy. And I wonder why that is. There's This is a big part of the conversation, so feel free to 
tug on any threads you want there. Yeah, there's, I mean, there are many reasons, I think, for this, but it was a constant fr- frustration of mine when I uh, first got to D.C. because we were working on stopping these Bush judicial nominees and then knowing that uh, Democrats controlled the Senate at the time um, and the House and it had flipped in 2006. And so we were going to come into an Obama presidency and we were going to have an opportunity to appoint our own judges and no one was talking about it. Wow. And no one was talking about who those people would be. No one was focused on it in the campaign. And so I took- And you're talking about like senior political folks inside, like the insiders. Nobody's talking about what we're going to do. Nobody's talking about what we're going to do here. And I think, uh, you know, the the uh, episode that made me the most concerned <laughs> was um, I was 24 at the time. Yeah. And- uh, President Obama looked like he was uh, about to win the primary, and his lead people came to the organization I worked for um, and said, what should we be saying on judges? Because this might come up in a debate. Often it, that's where it comes up, right? Somebody yeah. in a, a general election debate will ask because they know the Republican is going to want to talk about it. Yep. And so Democrats have to have something to say. They were like, can you write us some talking points? And so my boss said, Lene, can you write some talking points? And I was like, okay, based on what? (laughs) Like, uh, okay. So I was like, do we have some files of like, you know, what we said in the Clinton administration or in in the Carter administration or, you know, something for me to work from? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I think there's something in the files. You can go go figure it out. So I just made it up. And then wrote them some talking points, which I'm sure were excellent, you know. I'm sure they were excellent. Based on what, right? Nothing. And um, the only things I could find in the files were about diversity. They were Mm. everything Clinton and Carter said was about diversifying the federal bench. And you saw this with Biden too, right? What was his promise? He promised, I'm going to put the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court. That's right. He did. That's the only thing he said. That's exactly what he said. That's the only thing he said on judges. Yeah. Uh, Not that that's a bad thing. Like that, great, great. But, but okay. it's really good. But that who is that speak... African American woman going to be? And what kind of judicial what philosophy kind will they of bring to the way bench? Will she look at the law? Yeah, because being an African American woman doesn't tell you all of those things. Right. Um, but we've relied upon diversity as the mm. the as only value. Thi- the only thing right. we're talking about, and an assumption that you know this is what Elizabeth Warren always says: like personnel is policy. So mm-hmm. we're like, well, if we put enough people of color and women on the bench, they'll figure out the rest. Um, and and wow. that's you know we can look at Amy Coney Barrett to know that that's yeah, not that's, that's yeah. not working out. So or Clarence Thomas, right. uh, you know, it doesn't mean that every female jurist or person of color is going to do liberal stuff. Right. Um, so I think that that's been a huge piece of the problem. The other piece of the problem is this perennial um, democratic. Um, kind of both sidesism hmm. thing, okay. which is we and I think I've heard you say this before. Like we're always the grown up in the room, right? Yeah. And so we the Democrats, the Democrats I mean, yeah. are always the grown ups in the room, and we're always trying to be fair and thoughtful, even when the other side isn't. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's why, for example, in a lot of the states that we control, we um, we implemented uh, nonpartisan redistricting commissions. And now we're going to lose House seats because we mm-hmm. did the good government thing mm-hmm. instead of maximizing our House seats in blue states and the Republicans did the opposite. So yeah. we're very good at this in many ways. But we've done it here because um, some liberal donors said, we need a Federalist Society. Yeah. How are we going to get one? OK, yeah. let's create one. So they created the American Constitution Society. OK. Sounds great. Great. I'm for the, the Constitution? American Constitution. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. They're a great organization. But they don't do what the Federalist Society does. Hmm. They want to have, like, you know, well-rounded debates about all things. They want to make Hmm. sure that at their conference, every viewpoint is represented. Hmm. They want to, um, you know, uh, not sound too partisan. They want to make sure that they're um, taking a fair viewpoint towards everything. So they're basically journalists. At this point, so, and not uh, advocating, and they certainly don't do kind of the vetting of the judges and the pipeline stuff yeah. that the Federalist Society does. So the way that Democrats appoint judges is by who knows people, yeah. like literally who knows people. Do you know an African American woman who might be a good Supreme Court justice? Cool. 
great, let's put them on a list. And we let our senators do a lot of it, which is kind of how it used to be done before the Federalist Society was like, we're taking over. So um, every uh, circuit court judge is assigned to a state. Um, And so that state, you know, when it was the South Carolina seat um, in the Fourth Circuit, that meant Lindsey Graham got to weigh in, right? And so every senator has like a number of judges that are their judges. And Democrats look at, you know, Ben Cardin in Maryland and say, yo, who do you know that wants to be a judge? And then we appoint that person. I mean, it's a little more than that. Sure, sure, sure. We rely on— But compared to the streamlined machine of of the Republican side, yeah. It's not a pipeline. And we rely on the American Bar Association, which is also, you know— Not a partisan organization. Not a partisan organization. Or an advocacy organization. Right. To say this person is qualified. Hmm. That's okay. great. I'm I'm really happy to have qualified yeah. judges. But again, that tells you nothing about their judicial philosophy, sure. how they approach the law, sure. how they might approach the big decisions of the day. Um, and mostly, we try to pick people that uh, have never said anything on any of those things. Mm. So Elena Kagan is the perfect example. Elena Kagan had never said anything about anything. <laughs> Which is why she was the why perfect she was nominee. Confirmed. We're like, <laughs> never had an opinion about anything ever. Yeah. You're picked. You're, yeah. Because we don't want to spend political capital on it. We're not willing to. And so Democratic presidents say, how can I get through this confirmation hearing with the least amount of controversy? And that means picking not a person who is you know, out there with their judicial philosophy, but a person who's managed to not say anything in their life publicly. Yeah. And Republicans do the exact opposite. Amy Coney Barrett said Roe's unconstitutional or, you know, yeah. Roe should be overturned beforehand. And that's why she got picked. Right. right. <laughs> and right. we are never going to do that right. on the Democratic side. We right. just aren't. Okay. So when you and I were discussing this, I don't know, some weeks ago, which is what led to this podcast, by the way, because I feel like our listeners will find this very useful. Um, after you explained that, uh, basically that there, there really isn't a cohesive answer to the federal society on the democratic side, I wondered aloud, um, and I still do wonder this, if essentially what environmental or ideological, um, circumstances have given rise to this this landscape. And one of the things I wondered, and we should talk about the the, the political sort of at the, you know, the the grassroots support for or lack of support for a judge forward agenda, right? We should talk about that. But I wondered if there is some connection between a pre- a general preference, as we've discussed on the podcast before, a general preference among Democrats for more centralized answers, more national answers to problems, nationalized answers to problems, as opposed to state and local answers to state and local problems. I wonder if that preference actually sort of precludes any, uh, you know, a big appetite for organizing to get judges all, you know, at all three layers of the federal bench. I don't think we ever came to a conclusion, but do you think that could have something to do with it? Do you think that the, the sort of historical ideology of of Democrats and that, that national preference uh, contributes to the lack of enthusiasm for building an organization to do what the federal society is doing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. I would say there there's two other big parts. One is an assumption that judges are going to be on our side. <laughs> Because they have been for a while, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, they're increasingly not because now Donald Trump appointed all of them. But they they had been for a long time and we could rely on them. We could go back to them and say, oh, these folks are going to do what we want. And so we haven't had a sustained period where folks on the left were seeing laws that we cared about struck down. And that's what really motivated the right to say they needed to engage on this, right, was that laws that they liked, Mm -hmm. limitations on abortion, you know, um, prayer in schools, all these other things were being struck down. And Mm. they were like, wait, 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 what? And we haven't really seen that here. And so, for example, if the ACA had been struck down, boy, we would have organized around judges, right? But it wasn't. 
because we trust these lovely college-educated, law school-educated people are going to end up in basically the right place. So we just assume they'll be fine. So I think that's one piece. The other piece is it's much harder for us to articulate what our judicial philosophy is. I was just going to ask you that. And Give me sort of some examples of – so you described textualism earlier. I'm sorry to interrupt right. you, but this is really important. Yeah. You described textualism earlier and what it is and, and why that means Scalia comes out on the other side of things that you might expect him to – what are some other coherent judicial philosophies and which one do Democrats prefer? So the one that it had for a long time been talked about on the left and would be kind of the the opposite of Scalia um, is the living constitution. Okay. No one wants to say that out loud anymore. It's like defund the police. Like, don't mm. don't say that because it sounds bad, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that um, the Constitution meant a thing when it was written, and now it means a different thing because of societal context, because our nation has evolved. And if at one point it might have, for example, felt not like cruel and unusual punishment to execute someone uh, by paralyzing them and then killing them and knowing that the first shot paralyzes them but does not kill them and so they are suffering but cannot move. Excruciatingly. That was not cruel and unusual punishment before. It is now. Yeah. And so there's a kind of ratcheting up of some of these ideas that like, okay, now we know more. We know more yeah. than we did then. Yeah. So we should l- read these words in the context they were written and then apply them to the context now for what they mean. The Second Amendment is a great example. We're not, we don't have militias. We don't have militias. We don't have yeah. militias running around, right? Now, do I think the Second Amendment still means something? Yes. But it's it was about militias yeah. and it was about powder guns. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what the – it was about the guns they used in the Revolutionary War, which are not – AK-47s. Yeah. So there's some changed circumstances here. Should we reflect upon that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is what gets you to, um, you know, some of these decisions around LGBT rights and things like that, because, yeah. you know, Justice Scalia would say, of course, equal protection of the laws doesn't mean gay people get to do whatever they want, because it didn't mean that to the founders. Yeah. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg would say, it should mean that now. It should mean that now. So yeah. because uh, things that were okay then are not okay now. Correct. So there, and we should look at evolving standards of decency. We should look at uh, what the states say. We should look at okay, did thirty states like outlaw capital punishment this way because they realized that it was really horrible? Mm-hmm. You know, we should look at what public opinion says. Um, and you know, was, uh, Justice Breyer articulates this a lot too. Just look, you have to look at the circumstances of a particular case. Like Thomas Jefferson wasn't sitting around thinking about AK-47s. Right. So we're going to need to do a little work here to yeah. figure out what he might have thought and what the value was there and how it's applied in society today. That all sounds good, but living constitution sounds like you're being squishy. Mm. It sounds like, you know, when when one side says, look at the text, yeah. this is what's written, and the other side says, well, that was a long time ago. It doesn't really feel equally yeah. matched, and so we haven't been able to articulate our judicial philosophy in that same way. Okay, um, and we haven't kind of coalesced around it either. Got it. Um, and so, which it speaks means, to the organizing challenge. That's right. So, what? Are you, how are you supposed to vet people if you don't know what standard you're vetting them against? Yes. Um, and so, instead, we've relied on these, you know, other these proxies. We've said, oh, Sonia Sotomayor, like probably going to be okay because she's a wise Latina, you know? And Mm. it's like, well, yeah, I mean, she's been great. You're putting a lot of, uh, you're putting a lot of faith in, in assumptions about identity. That's right. Yeah. Which we've talked about on the, on the political side too, right? Democrats are, um, always assuming, oh, if uh, I get a person of color out to vote, they're going to vote for me (laughs) because (laughs) obviously they're going to vote for me because look at the other guy. Um, but I think that has a lot of, uh, you know, assumptions built in that aren't, aren't correct. Yeah. Okay. This is super, super helpful and useful. Um, and thank you for teaching us all this. I want to go back to um, the Roberts Court, his, his stewardship of the of the of the image, the legacy, the institution. Why is it important? Okay, so we've been talking about why the politics are asymmetrical, 
in terms of changing the bench um, ideologically. And I want to take a step back and look at that question more broadly and have you explain why it's important that the judiciary be seen as legitimate and um, and credible, no matter who's underneath the black robes, and generally how you see a lot of the controversy around the court, especially the Supreme Court right now, because I got to say, I have heard some of my liberal friends who I like and respect, I would have been surprised to hear them say things like, this court isn't legitimate. Mm. And that terrifies me. That's right. Yeah. Really kind of, it really scares me. That's right. Because that, um, well, anyway, I wonder what you think about that. First of all, why is it important that that all of the courts, all of the judges, that their decisions be respected uh, and be seen as legitimate and binding? And what do you make of the of the controversy, the contributing factors, and and sort of where we are now with that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, on the first point, this is a co-equal branch of government. This is part of our checks and balances. Um, it is. The courts are the reason that Congress has any kind of limits on what laws it can pass, right? So yeah. otherwise, Congress could write a law that said whatever they want. And, you know, if the courts aren't legitimate, then that law stands because there's no one who can stop them. Um, so there's a piece where they interact with Congress, but then there's the piece where they interact with the executive. And that's really what um, what scares me about delegitimizing the courts, which is that the courts don't enforce their own decisions. The executive has to enforce their decisions. And one of the like big moments um, was after Brown versus Board of Education was um, decided, which you know said schools are not allowed to be segregated. The courts didn't do anything after that, right? Like the courts didn't go in and judges didn't go in and desegregate yeah. schools in the, the South. The police don't work for the judges. They don't work for them. Yeah. And so you needed the National Guard. You needed the president to order the National Guard to go into Alabama and say, we're enforcing this because it's the law. And if that's not treated as the law— then it doesn't matter what the judges say. Then right. people are just going to do whatever they want. You know, if if you have to have Miranda rights read to you, you have to that that's a case uh, about a defendant named Miranda who was not read rights. <laughs> and um, if you know if the police just disregard that, then you're going to be locked up without having any idea what your rights are, and you can't do anything about it. Yeah, and the judges can't do anything about it. Because the police officers have to yeah. be the ones that respect the court. Because they already the did their job, and now it's up to a That's co-equal right. branch. To so I think, like, I am very concerned about people delegitimizing the court. I'm also concerned about these ideas that we're going to, um, you know, kind of pack the court. Um, you know, that's obviously not what proponents of it would call it. Yeah. But um, I've seen some of them say that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, right. But, that is, you know, that doesn't travel well. It do, yeah. I mean, to me, it doesn't. because. Yeah. Because then, like, uh, yes, nine is not a magic number, but it's been historically what we've had for quite some time, not forever, but for a long time. And if all of a sudden we're like, well, we don't like your picks, we're going to just add like seven more so we have a majority, why wouldn't the next president just do the next thing? And I just, I don't know where that ends. It seems to me like mutually assured destruction. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I I agree with you. It it also does, it it scares me just from the the broad trend of of increasing distrust in institutions everywhere across the board, all kinds of institutions. That's right. And also the unraveling of those institutions. And Mm so it does seem like both a, a, a natural... Uh, part of that trend for people to be even more suspicious and and distrusting of even the Supreme Court. Uh, But it also is very scary for just how, you know, how fragile it feels like our democracy is right now. And this is the system that we have. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, I mean, people who um, sort of legitimately dislike people on the bench, right? You can, you can not like Supreme Court justices and also believe in the system and have faith in the system and their legitimacy to hand down decisions, how do you balance those things? And what advice would you give to people who are, you know, maybe still in shock over the recent abortion law in Texas that was just allowed to go into effect? And, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think in the same way that I don't like Donald Trump, but I did not say he did not win the election because he won the election. 
And then I worked for four years to undo. Um, 2016 to, election. Yeah, the, twi- <laughs> the 2016 election. He won the first one. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, that yeah. that was a process that people voted. Yeah. Do I think that was the most horrible decision that we could have possibly made and it has now brought us to where we are now, which is very bad? Yeah, yeah but I didn't say he didn't win. Yeah. Um, so you, you have to take the – if we've agreed to the rules of the game, yeah. you got to play by those rules. And um, But, boy, can I still say Donald Trump is an evil Nazi. Mm. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> but he was also the president. He was also the president. The, those are both true. Yeah. And Brett Kavanaugh – is I don't know him personally, but seems like a pretty horrible human being. Yeah. And yet he's also a Supreme Court justice, and those things are not mutually exclusive. So yeah. I think, you know, you don't have to like people to know. I mean, I don't like Mitch McConnell either, but yeah. he happens to be a senator. Yeah. Happens to be the leader of their party. Um, so I, I And the people of Kentucky keep putting him there. They keep putting him there, and that is the point, which is if we had more control in the Senate, if we controlled the Senate, we wouldn't have Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. We have to win. You have things. to win power. You have to win things. Yeah. And then you get to pick the judges. Yeah. And that's super important. And when we're in there, we have to concentrate on picking the judges. Because yeah. to the point, Obama didn't, right? Yeah. He he just didn't. Yeah. And he could have filled a lot more vacancies and he didn't do it. And then those vacancies were sitting there for Trump to fill. And that's why we have as many appellate court judges by Trump as we do by Obama. Because and that, he inherited all of those vacancies from Obama. Because there were spots to fill yeah. and we just didn't prioritize it. So yeah. I think we really need to to think about that. But I want to go back to the point that you raised about John Roberts and yeah. the legitimacy yeah, yeah. piece. And, you know, and I want to think back to uh, 2000, okay. right? In 2000, our, our Supreme Court chose the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. It was not the person who had won the most votes nor the most electoral votes. We later determined we did not have a revolution. Right. We respected that decision. We were pissed off about it. Also, Gore decided not to proceed further. Right. Correct. Which was an important decision for a presidential candidate to make in his position. Correct. And he respected the legitimacy of the court, even though he was super pissed. Yeah. yeah. And he said, no, this is is our system. This is what we're doing. They've made this decision. This is what the country needs is for me to to Mm. back away. And then we didn't have a revolution. We didn't have an insurrection. Right. Right. And so that, I think, is the court that John Roberts is trying to preserve is one that will make a decision that is very fraught and the country will not devolve into revolution. And so he, you know, kind of keeps an eye. He does his own version of living constitution. Right. Mm -hmm. He's like, hmm. Yeah. What is the New York Times going to say about this? Hmm. I mean, would you put the ACA decision in that bucket? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which was essentially about tax. Yeah. Right. right. And he split the baby. And, and, you know, but I think he he is very conscious of the impact of the decision the courts make and um, and then the feedback loop for how people see the court. And if they think that it is a completely political institution that's just going to do whatever the president wanted that appointed them, that doesn't look good. Yeah. It doesn't look like a co-equal branch. It doesn't look like a check and a balance. And he doesn't want the court to to look political. You know, his, his thing he kept saying over and over again at the confirmation hearing, if you recall, was, um, I'm just an umpire. I call the balls mm-hmm. and strikes. Mm-hmm. Now, that's BS. But, okay, maybe not. Yeah. But it is something to aspire to. Yeah. Right? That, that, that idea The is, idea is a yeah. good one. Now, I would say that he, you know, was an umpire who maybe had one eye closed <laughs> and was, like, looking in a certain direction <laughs> based on his decisions before that. But, um but he he has tried to maintain that veneer, and I appreciate that because yeah. um, I do think that it has made the court less fraught, um, but it uh, has also made liberals less focused on it uh, until now, and now we're in deep trouble. Okay, so let's maybe close with what people can do, how individual voters, listeners should be thinking about all of this, because I bet uh, they haven't really thought about these structural differences on the left and right when it comes to judges. And I wonder uh, I wonder what advice you might give them um, for making some kind of change in this 
area? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, uh, the Senate confirms judges, so House candidates don't have anything to do with with the judges. So the deciders here are the senators and the president. So ask your senators and your president what they think about judges and what they're looking for in a judicial Mm. nominee. Um, And pay attention to uh, the vacancies that are up. So you can look, um, you know, my my organization I used to work for, Alliance for Justice, um, keeps a list of the vacancies. um, And senators, like I said, are are looking for input. They're making political decisions about who they're going to appoint in in these states. So you can see, is there a vacancy in my state? Hmm. Hmm. Okay, I wonder what that that person is going to do with that vacancy. Who are they going to suggest? Write them a letter, call them, you know, do the constituency things that we do on legislation on judges because Democrats never hear from constituents on judges. Not once, unless they're constituents who don't vote for them and they're yelling at them. They never hear from their coalition on judges. And the other side does. Which means that's a huge opportunity for you, Politicology listeners. It means that when you speak up, you're going to be speaking to an empty— You're going to be the only person person who knew there was a district court nomination (laughs) that's even happening. Um, And I would say, too, the other thing we are really good at as Democrats is just leaving people hanging in the wind. And when when we get any whiff of controversy, we'll withdraw the nomination. So engage on those. Watch for those. Is there a place where the Republicans are trying to take somebody out because they one time said one thing about, you know, women being equal to men and that means something, Mm. something Roe? Support them. Toughen up a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, you know, I countless times would try to um, influence these senators around a particular nominee and they just they don't want to spend the political capital either because they don't get rewarded for it by Mm. their constituents. Reward them if they stand up. Stand by those people who we should be appointing to the bench, and uh, and and just pay attention and make sure that um, this is one of the things that you know your senator is voting on because yeah. it's not just the reconciliation bill. It's right. not just uh, BIF, the yeah. bipartisan infrastructure package. Yeah. It's it's also these judges that are going to make decisions about your life and about my life and about how the law is applied that. Uh, are going to change the future of the country. The changing how power moves. That's right. Yeah, and who holds it. Monet, this is delightful. As always, thank you for being here. So fun. Um, Politicology, we will see you next time. Bye. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.